his wife have done that. They've, they've actually had the conversation. They've addressed it, you know, in a healthy way. They've, they've kind of gone there. And now behavior hasn't changed. So now what? What's left now, right? Well, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a tactical answer. And the tactical answer is typically if you've, if in group, taking the specific instance, really what needs to happen is those people need to be told in a nice way, hey, I'm looking forward to when your schedule allows you to really keep the commitment that groups have, and I'd love to help you find that group when your schedule reaches that place, which is a nice way of saying you can't be in our group unless you can be as punctual because I'm not going to damage the rest of the group for you. But that's a hard, you know, like, how do we do that? How do we, how do we, how do we get people to agree with us that that's probably the best solution. So if I was, if I was um, Sterling's group's coach, what we'd be working on is, hey, this behavior can't go on for the sake of the group. You've addressed it. So it's not ignorance. Like you've called them to the standard and they're not responding to that call. Now what, now what do we do to see like, hey, group is a great thing. It's a healthy thing. It's an important thing. And it is something that needs to be a part of your life, I believe, but it also, your life needs to be at a place where you can keep the commitment, right? But is there a way, here's the ideal scenario, right? The ideal scenario is that becomes their idea, right? It's like Inception, you know what I mean? The movie Inception where they planted the idea in the brain of the individual that they wanted to have happen. So, so, so this talk is a little bit about how do, how do we, is there, there, there's a technique I want to describe to you that, that's actually a, a, one of the sub-bullets of, of the whole conflict conversation that I think is a really, really powerful tool. And this is the tool that I would encourage Sterling and his wife to use in regards to their group and how to get them to have this conversation. So if it's not helpful, Sterling, I got nothing else for you. So I'm, I'm just going to apologize ahead of time. All right. So... <clears throat> The thing that we have to deal with, the it, right, and, and there's no outline for this, and, 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 and I'm, I'm happy to send you all the notes, so I, I don't want you to be terribly distracted trying to write down, because it's a very simple idea like, like the previous one. So if, you, if, you, if you're that person that, that, that really wants to take notes, but I don't want you totally um, distracted, don't fear. I'll send, I'll send whatever you need to, to remember all this stuff. So this is the it, right? This is the thing. In, in, in Sterling's case, this is the punctuality issue he's dressing, addressing. But, but the it is something that we can see easily in other people, right? It's so easy to see that. It's hard to see this in ourselves, and it's so easy to see this in others, isn't it? And the closer we are to them, the more clear this is, right? I mean, my wife Allison, super, super wonderful, sweet lady, um, she was reading this book one time, and it was one of these books, like self-examination books, like self-discovery books, which, you know, as a spouse, you're kind of like, I like to see this. I like to see this. There's, there's a possibility that, you know, as a spouse, you're kind of like, maybe the author says something, and your spouse comes to you and goes, you know what, I, this book's really stirring up, and it's like, I, I wonder, and you realize, I've said that 30 times. But if she said it, fantastic. Just, you know, I, I don't know if you feel convicted, you know. Um, so anyway, Allison was reading this book, and, you know, we have three kids. Our oldest is a freshman, middle schooler, elementary schooler. So 
activities, you guys know, that season of life, super busy, super busy. So date night is hard to um, get on the calendar. But we happen to get date night. We're trying this restaurant that she'd really wanted to try. I mean, the kids were gone or there's something, something had freed the runway, right? So, you know, hadn't had date night in a while, really cool restaurant we were enjoying, you know, conversation was really good. Like, the trajectory of this evening was going in the right direction. You know what I mean? So, in the middle of this dinner, Allison brings up this book and says, hey, one of the things they, they, they ask in this book is, they ask the people closest to you to tell you what are the things you see in their life that they need to work on, right? The reason you're reacting is because all of you, especially the guys, are like, it's a trap, it's a trap, you know? And, you know, I was sitting there, and, you know, it's not like I didn't have an answer, right? We've been married 20 years. I wasn't about to ruin this evening with honesty, though. You know what I mean? Like, why do that? This is, we haven't had date night in four months. You think I'm going to wreck this train over that? But the point is, the point is, we can see it. We can see it in our group members. We can see it in our spouses. We can see it in others. The it is the thing that, that is, is the thing you're thinking about with the initials on your page. And oftentimes, again, this is kind of behavioral. It's another way of looking at the four C's, but it's, it's, it's less than a, it's a less, more of a surface level, behavioral level than a deep level. But oftentimes it's something that start, stop, or change, right? Start showing up on time. Uh, stop talking more than everyone else. You know, uh, change your harsh approach to the rest of the group, you know, change, change the way you're giving, you know, one of my friends told me one time, you know, I have the gift of unsolicited advice. And I'm like, I'm not sure the rest of us see that as a gift, but, you know, can we change the prescriptive nature of the way you're, you're um, dealing with group? So sometimes it's that behavior that we're reacting to. And we talked about the root, but start, stop, or change. So a few years ago, my son's 15 now, but when he was, you know, my son is like the pickiest eater that has ever been born. And how many of you raised a picky eater? Anyone? Okay, we got some. Some of you are, were that, this person. So, um, so my son is a super picky eater. And there was um, this season of his life. Let's say he's about seven at this point. And there wasn't a meal my wife could prepare that he wasn't disappointed in. And he is not a good poker face person. So my wife makes dinner, right, and is doing her best to, you know, she's a pleaser, she's a harmonizer, so she wants everybody to be happy, and, and she's worked hard at making dinner. She puts dinner on the table, and I, I'm not kidding you, consistently, it's like his response was like, why are you poisoning us? Do you even love us? Like, I, it was, and, and, and so here's the dance. And this happened all the time. So wife works hard, gets dinner ready. Tyler is like, oh, again, again, you know, mush, you know, whatever. And my wife would be hurt, right, wounded by this. Like, I'm trying, I'm trying, I can't ever please you kind of thing. And as her husband, I'm like angry. So the dance 
regularly was, are you trying to kill us? I'm hurt. Go to your room. You know what I mean? It was like, it was this miserable triangle of doom that, that was happening on a regular basis. And I know, like, when it compared to some trials you're experiencing, that feels like, really, dude? You're drowning in that mud puddle? But you guys know when, when your kid and your wife, when this is happening, it's like this was, this was ruining life. You know, in, in a season, it was kind of like dinner time was miserable. Because I would yell at him, he's seven, you know, he'd be crushed, you know, and, and it, just, it just was miserable. So, somebody shared with me this idea, and I'm telling you, I was like, oh my gosh, this, this changed everything. And it's, it's a particular sliver that doesn't just work. I mean, you're like, well, I'm glad it worked with your kid eating dinner. We got bigger fish to fry up here in group world, but... Let me just tell you, this works everywhere all the time. And I have a feeling, potentially, it could work in the case that Sterling brought up, and it could work in, in just about any conversation you have with the people in your initials. So being able to see this is not the same thing as dealing with it, but when we deal with it, our challenge is creating shared perspective on this, right? Because we see this in the lives of our, our loved ones, our group members, or people we know. We see this clearly, but obviously they see it differently, right? If they saw it the same way, then these conversations Sterling's talking about would work like, hey, just need to remind you, remember we committed to one another. Oh, you're so right. I'm sorry, man. We were not going to miss for the next three months, I promise you, right? If we both saw this the same way, this would be easy. The problem is we don't. Sometimes it's a blind spot. They can't see it. Right? And sometimes it's, a, it's a, not a blind spot. They just decided not to see it. Like the, the, the commitment issue Sterling talked to me about isn't a blind spot anymore because he's talked about it. You know, I worked for a boss one time, and my boss noticed that at the leadership team table he was sitting at with all the other bosses, that whenever someone would leave, everybody in the room would talk about that person, like the thing about that person. So he's meeting with me. And he says, I really wonder what they say when I'm not in the room. Now, from what you know about me, like already just in this morning, like how would someone like me handle that situation, right? Unwisely is probably the answer. But I was like, you want to know? Because I know. And that's what he was asking me. He's like, I wonder what they say looking at me like, do you know? And I'm like, I do know. I know exactly what people say. And he's like, what is it? I said, man, it's too many words, way too many words. I mean, people are like, man, this guy could say 80% less words. And honestly, his reaction was, was like, oh, is that it? Whew, I thought it was something bad. You know, and you're like, that's not changing. You know what I mean? <laughs> so sometimes it is an ignorance, right? It's just I don't want to change, right? But speaking up, it costs us something, right? Sometimes the cost is high, and that's why we avoid that's why we don't have these conversations. Um, we stuff it sometimes or we behave in a passive-aggressive way or we find some other person who's burned by the same thing and we warm ourselves by the fire of like, can you believe? Yeah, can you? You know, oh, you know. So that's what we do. And sometimes we send someone else, you know, like try to encourage other people to have the conversation we want to have. You know, I, my very first job out of college, okay, my very first job out of college, I was working for a guy 
and the guy had some really, really unhealthy behaviors. And, and honestly, his boss used to take me out all the time, and he would, he would ask a lot about, hey, how's it going with so-and-so, you know, which I wasn't even old enough or smart enough to realize how dysfunctional what was happening. Like, my boss's boss is taking me out to lunch and taking the temperature on my boss, and nobody was whispering in my ear, like, this is a bad situation, you know. So one day I just shared, you know, and I genuinely loved my boss. I really did, but, but he had some, some stuff that I thought was, was damaging his, his influence in the organization. And, and this was, again, stupid young kid, but of course his boss knew that. He was just taking the temperature of well, how is it affecting me. So one day we're at lunch, and I'm like, hey, you know, I think, I think somebody needs to talk to this guy. I think, I think he'd be infinitely more effective. It really wasn't coming from a place of, you know, hey, let me, let's talk out of school about this guy. I, I really, he was, this guy was mining me for that, and so I eventually sort of shared, like, I think someone's, and so this is what my boss's boss said. He said, I think you should tell him. And I was like, really? Huh. You know, and I was stupid enough to think that was actually good advice. So, so what, what was happening there was he should have told him and wanted to tell him, but it's like, hey, he's, he's young in his career. He'll find other jobs, you know. It's like, <laughs> would you please go in and take the radiation for us, you know. So, you know, I, I thought, well, okay, well, you are older and wiser. I guess so, you know. How do you think that went, you know. Well, I'm in ministry now, so that tells you about how it went. So <clears throat> we manage and we cope until we can't, right, we stuff until we see it's hurting the group, this is the concern Sterling has, right? We, this, this can't go on. So we got it, we kind of confront it, we did confront it, but it's still going on. So how do we do it? So this is the tool uh, that helps make these conversations more successful. The good news about this, it doesn't require personality type, there's no special talent, it can be used by anyone in any situation, and it actually works. So I, I have seen this work enough, and I don't even, I don't even have to tell you, like, that it takes this special gifting or anything, like every one of you can use this. And it's not even new. It's very, very old. In fact, it's thousands of years old. It's found in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 11 and 12. 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And this is the whole David Bathsheba story. So you guys know the story, but let me recap for you a little bit about what happened here. So it says, you know, David was supposed to lead the troops in battle. He didn't end up going. He stayed home. Obviously, that, that little editor's note was a mistake. And he's out you know, on the rooftop, and he sees a woman taking a bath, and, you know, we don't know if that's like, oh, ooh, oh, hey, mm, or mm, what time is bath time? You know, like, we don't know what David was up to there, but he saw a woman, and because he's king, and because he's selfish, he invites her over, sleeps with her. She's actually married to Uriah, the Hittite, who's out fighting the war. She gets pregnant. She sends news to David, I'm pregnant. David's like, uh-oh, Got to deal with this. Remember what he does? He sends for Uriah. Hey, come on back. Let's, I need a report. How's the battle going? Well, while that you're here, why don't you go sleep with your wife? You know, I would. And uh, so anyway, sorry. Um, so anyway, uh, Uriah is so faithful. Remember? He's like, how could, I, how could I go home? The troops are, the king's soldiers are in the field. How could I possibly do that? So he's, he, he stays at the palace. David is like, David's like, oh, come on, man. So he gets him drunk the next night, even drunk. 
He's loyal. So loyal, in fact. I mean, let this sink in in our brains. So loyal that David has Uriah deliver the instructions for his own execution to Joab in the field. And he is so confident of Uriah's faithfulness and loyalty that he knows Uriah will never look at something the king wrote for someone else. So Uriah ends up delivering the instructions for his own death to his general. That David didn't just kill a guy. He killed that kind of guy. So you think about the abuse of power and how ugly that is. And imagine if you're God and you anointed this man and put him in power, how you would feel about that. Because God chose this leader. Remember? Anointed this leader. And David abused his power. And in uh, chapter 11, verse 27, it says, The thing David had done displeased the Lord. Of course. Obviously, right? So God decides to deal with it. And he sends Nathan the prophet. Now, as you guys remember, you know, the prophets were God's mouthpiece to to the nation and sometimes directly to the kings, of course. So Nathan is this figure that God speaks to that has to go to the king. Now think about this. You know, honestly, like, if you read the prophets and really think about their lives, it was a terrible job. I mean, they were hated and stoned and beat up and had to do horrible things. I mean, Ezekiel had to walk around naked for like a year. I mean, how does God even communicate that message in a way you can hear it? You know, it's kind of, I used to think about like there's like this prophetic ham radio they pass on, and it's like, sounded like you said naked, please repeat, over. You know, it's like, how do you even hear that instruction? Anyway. So Nathan, uh, Nathan is told to confront David on this sin. Now, this is a sin that David had buried and justified over time, right? This is adultery plus murder. And God tells Nathan, here's what David did. I need you to confront him about it. That's a difficult conversation. Like, somewhere on the spectrum of Tyler complaining about dinner... Sterling complaining, you know, not complaining, but Sterling having to deal with group punctuality, confronting the king on adultery and murder. I'm just guessing that's on the polar end of whatever we're facing. So if there's a technique that can work out here, it can probably work for all of us, which is the good news. So the, the dilemma for, for Nathan is, because keep in mind who he's talking to. This isn't democracy. This is king, you know, and if somebody displeases the king, he can put him to death. And David isn't above this. I mean, he just committed murder. And if you, th- if you think back on David's story, David has murdered people for, the, for, for you know, doing something he thought was wrong. Or he's instructed them to be killed on the spot. I mean, think about Saul's armor bearer. You know, thought David was going to be thrilled that, that Saul was dead. So he came and told a story and said, I, I actually put him to death thinking he was going to get promoted. David killed him right there. This is not a guy who's afraid to kill people. So Nathan is kind of going into a situation where he has the ultimate perspective challenge, right? Because the facts are not in dispute. What David did is known to David. What David did is known to Nathan and known to God. So what this thing is, is absolutely clear. The problem is David has buried it under justification and time. And now Nathan has the challenge of going, how do I get... David to see this the way God sees it. And the way he has to do that is he has to re-engage David's heart. And and Nathan understood something about how people work. 
he understood that all of us are made up of a com combination of facts and feeling, intellect and emotion, right? All human beings have both of those things. Now, you may lead with one of those two things. You may engage with one of those two things. But all of us are a combination of facts and feelings. So this is why <clears throat> if you guys have ever um, had charities, there's lots of charities trying to end world hunger, right? So when they're trying to raise funds for world hunger, what do they do? They may show you a chart or two about world hunger, but if I were to put a chart up on the screen and say, this is a chart that illustrates world hunger, you know, the numbers and the sheer size and scope of it, that would engage a part of your brain, an informational part. But if you've ever seen the way that these charities or these nonprofits try to end world hunger, what do they do? They don't show us a chart. What do they show us? A picture. They show us a picture of a child that's starving. Why? Why do they do that? Because they understand that emotions are actually more powerful than data, more powerful than intellect and facts. And they motivate, motivate us to decision-making more effectively. They're actually closer in our brains to the decision-making center of our brain. So if I'm trying to motivate you to give to world hunger, I'm not just going to show you charts. I actually need to engage your emotions more effectively, tell you a story about a person who's starving. You are more likely... All nonprofits would tell you, you are more likely to give to a story that has an emotional connection than you are to any data, no matter how significant that's presented to you. So Nathan knew, the secret sauce here is this. I need to connect David's heart and mind. In order, in order to get him to see this perspective, I need to engage his emotions and connect his heart and mind. But be more than that, more than just understanding human design, Nathan knew David personally well. So let me ask you, what was David when he was anointed king? What was he doing? What was he? It's not a trick question. You've seen it on a felt board somewhere. Shepherd. All right. David was a shepherd. So part of David's story is that he took care of sheep. He was a shepherd. And Nathan knew David cared about animals. David cared about sheep because at some point he used to take care of them. So you're, you're, you're Nathan. You're having to go to the king and share about something that is very, very dangerous for you personally. And you realize we got to connect his heart and mind on this because the key is to get him to see this the way God sees it. So you marry your knowledge of human beings how do I connect his emotions to this, reconnect them? And I know David well enough to know his own story. So Nathan decides to tell David a story. In chapter 12, this is what we read. You guys, you guys already know the story, but I'll read it to you. When he came to him, when Nathan came to David, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, just for a moment, step back and see the weirdness of this, right? Like, <clears throat> I don't know if things were slow in Israel at the time, but this just seems like not the top of the news cycle. You know what I'm saying? Like, 
this is such an odd little story to tell. And then on top of that, it's like, you're laying it on kind of thick, Nathan. You know, I mean, it's like I'm telling the king, who's obviously got big things on his mind, like a war, uh, hey, there's this story about a rich guy and a poor guy, and the rich guy, you know, the, the, the poor guy had this lamb that sort of ate out of his family's, you know, dish. I mean, what an odd story to tell the leader, right? But he's not just describing a pet, right? This thing is eating at the table, drinking from the cup. It's like a child. This isn't just some random sheep in the flock. Like, this is little Baba, Right? This is little Baba. Weird story. Where is this? Where is Nathan going on this? Keeps going. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and it pre- prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now, in a microcosm, this story is about abuse of power, right? Rich man has all the flocks in the world takes little Baba from the neighbor, kills it. How selfish. What an abuse of power. So that story was so effective because of who David was, the injustice of it triggers this response in David. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. All right, think about that. Think about how effective Nathan was at picking a fictional parable that he tells, he tells David about a story that a rich man takes a poor man's sheep and it moves David all the way to the point of pronouncing a death sentence. Like a lot of people, so a lot of kings would hear that story and be like, well, too bad, what's next? You know, but David cared. Why did he care? Because he had an emotional connection with the poor man in this story. Why? Because there had been some version of little Baba and David. He had had some sheep that stood out or some little wounded thing that he had taken care of and mended and he had an emotional connection and he understood where that poor guy had a connection. And so when he thought about the gut-wrenching nature of having that animal killed so selfishly, he decides, we got to kill that guy. So then Nathan turns the tables. He gets David in his brain to connect an emotion to the story. And right as that emotion is in full gear, Nathan says, you're the man. You're the man. So this is kind of like the Old Testament version of a record scratch. You know, it's like, oh, no. You know, like, so David is, the mental, his brain is now processing like, uh uh-oh. What this fictional man did to this sheep is what God sees me doing. And Nathan just goes for it at this point. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arm. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. So all of a sudden, Nathan opens up the entire story and he attached such 
a powerful feeling. So this is what, this is what Nathan did, this transaction. This little sheep story over here, how you feel about this is how God feels about that. How you feel about this is how God feels about that. So now, David, when those emotions connect to the, to the facts, he, break, he instantly breaks down and repents. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So, how, is that, how did Nathan so brilliantly close that gap, right? I mean, that's amazing. When you think about a difficult conversation, Nathan had to, like, have a conversation and he had to live through it. And he not only gets the facts out in the open, he gets David to say, I've sinned against the Lord and, and actually repent. And the reason is because David could now see what God sees because he felt what God felt. David could now see what God sees because he felt what God felt. Well, it works out here on the life and death stakes. What about on the dinner stakes? Now that kind of, you know, I don't mean stakes, you know what I mean. So anyway, uh, going back to Tyler. All right, so this idea kind of came to me while I was wrestling with this whole Tyler dinner dysfunction. And I thought, okay, how can I do this in a way that gets to Tyler? So at the time, Tyler's like seven or eight, and he was really, really into Legos, right? Like a lot, a lot of you probably have had Lego chapters in your life, and you, you know, because you certainly stepped up, ah, daggone it, you know, another one of those stupid things. So anyway, uh, Tyler, Tyler was really into Legos, and he would spend hours and hours and hours building these complicated models, and whatever I was doing, he would interrupt me, and the expectation was, dad, 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 you got to see this. You know, I'd stop whatever I was doing, I'd focus, and every little gun, wheel, compartment was explained. You know, it was sort of like the entire engineering s schematic of the whole thing was explained because he cared about it. And my job as a dad was to just put down whatever I was doing and be totally focused and engaged on it. So I thought, aha, I found it. So the next time he came to me with his Lego model, you know, I really laid it on. It was like, oh my gosh, tell me about that and tell me about that and tell me about that. And so we were fully engaged around and he was just so proud of this piece of art that he created. And, um, and I just said, Tyler, let me, let me ask you a question. I said, Tyler, what if you came to me and um, you were explaining your Lego model to me and I said, eh, that's not very good. You know, what if I said that's kind of, that looks kind of dumb to me. Like, how would you feel? Oh, man, even at seven and eight, he's like, oh, dad, you know, that, that would be terrible. That would crush me. And I said, Tyler, how you feel about your Lego model is how mom feels about dinner. Like, when you bring me your Lego model to explain it to me, that's mom bringing dinner to the table. So I could see the two little, he only had two wires in his brain at that point, and I could, I could see them moving towards each other, you know, like, and right, right as they touched, I was like, you are the man. You know what I mean? So um, I, I did it. There's enough reason for therapy without stuff like that. But so anyway, honestly, eight years old, same principle. Leveraging something in his life that he had an emotional attachment to and comparing it to something he didn't have an emotional attachment to. Text me. So like I, I knew better than to ask, but, but uh, there was no update. After three, three reminders, and, and so I was kind of complaining to Steve and Becky a little bit about, about that. So 
Maybe you have the same issue, and if, if you do, um, you know, I'm sorry. I'll pray for you. You pray for me. We'll get, we'll get through it. But uh, it really is great to see you all. And um, I don't know if you, how many of you have ever been on a missions trip? A lot of you, yes. Okay. So you know that when you go visit someplace on a missions trip and you connect with the people there, especially around Christ, um, you never forget that country or those people. And honestly, I don't know if you've noticed this phenomenon, but I definitely have. It's like suddenly whenever that country comes up in the news, like you think about, you have a connection to it. In the past, you would have just not even, maybe wouldn't have registered, but now you have a connection. That's kind of how I feel after visiting you all here in Omaha. Like every time Omaha came up in the news, I would be thinking about Brookside. I mean, honestly, I probably watched a little more Nebraska football this year because of you all, you know. Um, <clears throat> so I was with you, you know. There, was, there were some highs and some lows, but uh, I was with you. I don't want to dwell on that too much. I, I actually, l- last time I was here, I probably spent the first five or ten minutes talking about the life-changing experience of seeing Little Red, the mascot, for the first time. Because that just, and I honestly want to talk about that some more, but I'm, I'm disciplining myself not to do that because... Um, that was just incredible. So one thing I've just learned over the years is that when you have Christ in common, you have everything in common. And, and so I have felt connected to Brookside and Omaha since being here. And I love what you all are doing in this community and talking with Steve and Becky and many of you. You're making a huge difference here. And um, I love what this church is doing. And just like Steve said, even more specifically, I love what you all are doing because for the last 12 years, I've, I've, maybe even 15 years, I've been focusing on groups. And so this is a group of people that I probably feel closest to in any church because I'm with you. I lead groups. I'm in two groups right now, one I'm leading, one I'm in. I've, I've worked with hundreds, if not thousands, of group leaders. And so what you're doing day in and day out is very near and dear to my heart. In fact, The church I'm from in Atlanta, North Point, one of the things that we regularly say to our group leaders is, you are the pastors of our church. And that's not just a a pat on the back and a way to make people feel better. It's just true. The truth is that it's it's easy for people to attend church, and honestly, it's easy for them to sort of remain anonymous and hide in rows. It's not easy to do that in circles. In circles, you get to know each other. In circles, stuff comes up. In circles... You know, you're doing the work of ministry. And so the real labor and work of ministry is a lot of times happening more in your living rooms and in your kitchens um, than oftentimes happens even in a service on Sunday morning. So thank you for what you're doing. You are making a difference. And one of the things about group leadership I know from leading groups, and as you guys know, is sometimes you wonder, like, is anything really happening here? Like, are people really changing? Because a lot of times the change that God is working on isn't all that obvious, and many times it goes unarticulated. You know, when I think about the group leaders that have changed my life the most, you know, most of them, I think back now, and I regret to say this, but, but I haven't really gone back and thanked them and said, hey, here's the difference you made. A lot of the difference they made, they didn't even know they made. And so you guys are making a difference, and you may not feel it, you may not know it, and a lot of times, you know, groups are really cool places where you can see God break through in amazing ways, and there also can be very messy places. In fact, probably the more effective your group is, the more um, transformational your group is, the messier it is. And, and so, because people are messy, lives are messy, and if, if God breaks through and suddenly authenticity comes out in your group, that's a great thing, but oftentimes that's a messy thing. 
And as Steve mentioned, sometimes in group, we can have that difficult person. And all of us run into difficult people in our lives. Sometimes they get in our groups. So I think that what we're going to learn this this morning, hopefully these are some tools that I've had to develop myself, that I've had to work with leaders on. And I'm hoping that from my learning, I can hand off a little bit to you today, and that'll help you. So we're going to spend a whole morning talking about uh, difficult people. So get excited. Okay, so here's, here's what I want you to do. At the top of your outline, the very first thing I want you to do is I want you to think about the difficult person or people in your life, and I just want you to write their initials at the top of the page. It can be one letter, it can be two letters, it could be a couple. If you have one in your group, go ahead and put that person first. If you, don't, if you can't think of anyone in your group, that might be because you're the difficult person in your group, or it may be because there isn't one, but it's okay to have more than one. If it's somebody, if the difficult person is somebody you're related to, maybe married to, just draw an arrow to the person next to you, that, that can work. But have someone in mind, have someone in mind. So I want you to write that someone, you could be raising this person, you could be, ne- you could be living next door to this person, you could be working with this person, they could be in your group. So think of your difficult person. Let me tell you a quick story about a difficult person that I had to deal with. This was a person that wasn't in one of my groups, but was in a group. And there was something that happened in their group that made them very, 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 very upset. And they had tried to deal with it with other members of the staff on the church, and they didn't get the result they wanted. They didn't get what they were looking for. And so they had built up even more anger, even more frustration. And it was kind of like that customer who's, who's had a really bad experience and has asked to see the manager. You know what I mean? Like, usually if you're asking to see the manager, that conversation isn't... I just wanted to tell you how awesome this was every, every once in a while, but... In church world, if they're asking to see the manager, probably not. So uh, this person had dealt with staff. They, they weren't happy. And I was the boss of the person they weren't happy with. And, and their unhappiness stretched all the way back to something that happened in their group. So by the time they got to me, they were worked up pretty good. And it was instant anger, frustration, download, attack, 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 attack. Now, when, when somebody's hair.